Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Battle Map Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you and sponsored by I'm Nexus. I tried doing the joke again, and it also didn't work this time. But today, ladies and gentlemen, is the first episode of the Urban Legend series. And by, by, by what you guys can tell, the series is actually going to be uh, not part of the Babblemouth... Uh, it's not going to be part of like the Babblemouth episode. It's actually going to be its own thing. So it's going to have its own cover art and everything. But it's going to be in the same like playlist with the Babblemouth like, uh, on Spotify and everything. It'll be in the same area, but um, it'll just be uh, titled something different. So, uh, yes, today is the first episode of Urban Legends. we got five Urban Legends we're doing. Today we're doing Alabama, Southern Alaska, or just Alaska in general. I'm pretty sure that's where it's pretty much. I think that one's just Alaska in general, but the website said uh, Southern Alaska. Then we're going to do Arkansas, the Santa Lucia Mountains of California. And we also got a spooky story at the end. So we got Kelly, Arkansas, Arizona, Alaska. And Alabama. And we start off with Alabama. So, hope you guys enjoy these stories. I'm not really 100% sure how we're going to do this. But I think what I'm going to be doing is reading them. Then we'll go over the story. See how believable it is. Obviously, they're all urban legends. So, they're not necessarily real. Obviously, if you guys don't know what urban legend is. Here, I'll even get the definition of an urban legend right now. Just so you guys can see what it is. Urban legend, a humorous or horrific story or piece of information circulated as though true. Especially one, what the fuck, perpeting to, I can't say words. Urban legend. To involve someone vaguely related to and onto the teller. What is this word? Per-per-per-per-per. Report. Reporting. Purporting. What the fuck am I doing? A humorous, horrific story or piece of information circulated as though true, especially when purporting to evolve, to involve someone vaguely related or known to the teller. That's what an urban legend is. So basically, in, um, I guess in simpler words, it's a story that was told a long time ago and it was taken, out, it was taken and then changed, basically. Or it was a true story. That was then altered to make it more scary than the actual situation was. Or maybe it was some... Like, I know Dog Boy, that story is actually true. And we'll get to that later. I'm going to actually put that in quotes right here. True. Just so I don't forget. And I'm not sure how about all of these are being true. I mean, like I said, Urban Legends. So, they're not all true. And probably none of them are. But, uh, anyway. Let's get into this. What the hell just happened? That was weird. I don't know what just happened. I typed true and it was all silly. Does that fuck something? Okay, we're good. I don't know what that was. Anyway, let's begin. I don't know how long these episodes are going to be either. We're just going to... However long it takes is how long it's going to be. Anyway, the first story. Dead Children's Playground in Huntsville, Alabama. And these are real locations. This place is a real location you can go to in Huntsville, Alabama. Cemeteries can be boring for kids. The weight and import of death has not truly sunk in yet, so the cool headstones and elaborate grave markers might just must just seem like awesome rocks to play on, but no one will let them. They are going to live forever, so why is everyone so sad? When well, a park space adjoining Alabama's Maple Hill Cemetery, the largest and oldest in the state, there is a small playground where they can have a place to release that energy. Of course, the cemetery playground sees more ghost hunters and teenagers than bored children, 
It seems like a simple math and a sparse playground built on the grounds of a century-old cemetery would have come to a reputation more sinister than silly. But the planners put it away. Put it put it in anyway. A small array of simple playground equipment includes swings and a modern jungle gym. It is it is set in a low spot of the graveyard and surrounded by rocks and trees on three sides, making it all the more claustrophobic. As the historic cemetery began running out of room in 2007, officials from the city Huntsville decided to raise the play area to make more room for burials. Yet the locals were so outraged at the loss of the playground that the new playground was built, bringing the site back from the dead, so to, so to speak. Today, the playground is known as the locals as the Dead Children's Playground, and the mundane site has accumulated a deep catalog of supernatural associations. As the believers would tell it, the swings can often be found to sway by themselves, spheres of cold ghost light can be seen floating around, and even the specters of little kids have been spotted having a little midnight fun. Dead Children's Playground, where the kids can have a time of their afterlife. So that's the first one. Um... I don't know what, but the so basically it was a cemetery built. No, I said it was a playground that was built next to a cemetery, but then he needed more room, so they took out the playground to make more cemetery, and then they had to rebuild it because the town folk were fucking pissed. And yeah, I guess the the dead people just haunt the playground now. Uh, I guess for believability in this, uh, one that that it's haunted, I doubt that it actually is. I feel like it's probably just a bunch of bullshit, or you're seeing things, you're just psychos, I mean, you're living in Alabama, but, uh, the swings moving by themselves, I feel like, could be, well, that could be easily fucking faked, so, I don't know, it could also be wind, it's not, I mean, swings aren't the heaviest thing in the world, so, I mean, I'd say overall, it is a scary story, when I want to go there at night by myself, I mean, I would, I mean, I will, I don't give a fuck. Uh, I'd say spooky. Is the story scary? Kind of. I'd give. Out of, we're doing this out of ten, by the way. Us out of ten, I'd give that like a three. No, two, for scary. Because it's really not even that scary. It's just a playground at night. I mean, there's really nothing else to it, honestly, when you think about it. So let's move on to the next story. This is the legends of the Kushtaka from Southern Alaska. And this is a very long one, so we're gonna be here for a second. Actually, we're not going to read all. I'm going to stop. Where am I going to stop? Those are a lot of... Oh, this is comments. Never mind. Okay, we're, we're going to stop right there because that's the entire post. All right. So, the Kushtaka of Southern Alaska. The young tinglet girl was taking care of a clutched me. Taking care of clutched me? What? Taking care of clutched me. Shivering and terrified, her, her dark eyes dilated. Don't leave my side or they'll take me. Who? I asked. The Kushtaka, she whispered. Afraid to say it too loud in case they heard we had just seen, we'd just been told that the house we were staying in had been built on and was rumored a native graveyard. It was late at night and the girl who, t- who was too scared to sleep, I let her stay on my bed and talked, talked with her about unimportant things until dawn began to shimmer through the windows and she was finally fell asleep. She was finally fell asleep? She finally fell asleep. God damn. My sister Megan recently told me that for a long time she believed the Kushtaka, often pronounced Kustaka, Kustika, Kustika. I already did the Google Translate on this name a while ago, and it's Kushtaka when it says it. So we're frighteningly real, mainly because of my oldest brother Jamie loved to re regale us by kerosene lamplight with spine-chilling tales of the supernatural horrors of the Kushtaka were capable of. 
Just outside our night-darkened windows crouched the huge, sinister silence of the wilderness that surrounded us and it cut us off from the world. My two little brothers were so terrified they refused to go out at night and had to be accompanied by wood-hauling trips after dark. Now an adult, my brother Robin shared with the memory of our Uncle Rory telling the late-night Kushtaka stories doing a hunting trip to an uninhabitable island deep in the wilderness. One more Robin and my youngest brother Chris were hunting along the beach and came across a dead animal of some sort. Very hairy and grayish, couldn't tell what it was, but it sure as expletive scared the expletive out of us. They didn't, I'm assuming, but it sure, sure as scary as fuck, pretty much what they're saying, it was scary as fuck. These terrifying creatures originated in the native Alaskan folklore, passed down orally for generations, orally, nice, for generations in modern times, the human... The half-human, half-otter Kushtaka are identified with the Bigfoot, ETs, various boogeymen, and supernatural beings. They are the subject of horror novels, short stories, blog posts, YouTube clips, newspaper articles, non-fiction books, and conspiracy theorists. A recent book seeking to understand the Kushtaka put it away. The Kushtaka was the mythical shape-shifting creature of the Tinglet people, a beast capable of taking your darkest fears and manifest them into a hellish reality. In this book, we'll take a look at the shocking possibility of the Kashtaka made by the remnants of the fallen angels and the Nephilim. The book contains information that UFO community and church doesn't want you to know. A horror novel about these creatures summarizes Mark wakes up in his Alaskan cabin alone. Greatest fears are realized when he's tormented by the malevolent Kashtaka, the most ancient and evil demon of Alaskan folklore. The battle is not for his life, but for his very soul. One of the Amazon reviews of this book wrote, Having lived in Southeast Alaska, I finish, I fished for a living. I was well acquainted with the legends of the native friends. Fishermen are a very superstitious group, and the stories about encounter with the spirit are abundant. In recent, are very believable. Experience an episode in the forest that makes a believer out of me. Stories of the Kushtaka are told to everyone visiting Southeast Alaska, who adventures out into the deep wilderness. Here's one of, the, here's one of my own experiences with the consequences of this tradition. There's something out there. As a cook, deckhand, housekeeper of a guide boat, I was exhausted. I got up at 6.30 a.m. to wake, to make bag lunches and cook breakfast. I usually didn't get to my bunk until about midnight. Oh, I just hit the fucking mouse. My bad. Until after midnight. Sometimes not until 2.30 a.m. So to catch up on my sleep, I napped in the wheelhouse when the guides and clients were out all day. Today, though, two of clients had stayed behind and felt impelled to wake me. They sounded as if they really wanted to be cool and casual, but they couldn't quite pull it off. Since we were in a lonely bay many miles from the nearest town, I asked something. Can you describe it? They stared at me for a moment. Finally, the older one said something strange, awful. There was no attempt to be casual now. Come outside. You can hear it. I sighed. Not that long ago, the two non-Alaskan guides had gotten, gotten me up out of a deep sleep in the middle of the night, claiming something had bumped into the hull. They ran from one side to the other, peering into, into still dark water, we were anchored for the night and asked me to turn the big mast light. I did so. They talked in hushed voices about the possibility of monsters of the Kushtaka. Everyone knew there were frightening creatures in the wilderness. They asked me what I thought it was since I'd grown up in the bush. I could have told them all the spooky Kushtaka stories from my childhood, but it was tired, a log, I said, and went back to bed. I fell asleep to their whispered voices and feet pacing from one side to the other directly overhead. Now the clients were spooked too. I got up and went outside with them. It was a beautiful, peaceful evening with sunset coloring beginning to gather in the sky and reflect on the placid bay. The surrounding endless forest was turning black, javelin tips silhouetted against the glowing sky. We appeared to be the only humans left on the planet. Our boat, the only safety 
the only safe haven from the wilderness. The clients crowded close. Just listen, they urged, very low-voiced. They're out there. I listened. A moment later, a horrible guttural cry echoed across the still water. Something between a sucker for a secro fuck a howl and a threatening roar it was strange unearthly after note something like a hartley being revved out of one end of a long tunnel there it is they acclaimed you heard it didn't you we told you something was out there they were right something was it's a sea lion i said and then went back to bed but is there really something out there in the Alaskan bush? Do the Kushtaka exist in reality beyond the legends of oral stories of the native Alaskan people and the imaginations of horror story writers and conspiracy theorists? What event caused the stories of the half-human, half honor man to develop in the first place and to continue frightening people down to this day? Is it possible to find out? I believe it is. And my conclusions will be given in my next post. And that is the end of the story. So, uh... Some of that was from a book called Raised in Ruins by Tara Nelson. So if you guys want to finish that, go for it. But uh, yeah, some of that was from a book. The beginning of that was from a book. And then that last half there was someone else's uh, stuff, I think. At least it says it was. Anyway, uh, that one was pretty good. Actually, that was a good. That was just a good story. I mean, there wasn't really anything with the, the beast. I mean, a shape-shifting otter doesn't seem too crazy believable. I mean, otters are real. I'll give them that. Shape-shifting things, not. So that's not too believable. So I think for spookiness, if I was out there by myself, I'd be fucking shitting myself. So I'm going to give it like an like a 7. If I was out in Southeast Alaska by myself, like fishing by myself, I'd shit myself. But believability? Uh, 2. I'm going to give it a 2 for believability. 2 for believability... And a seven for being just scary in general. But since I don't believe it, it can't be that scary. So it's kind of contradicting itself. But anyway, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, next story. Slaughterhouse Canyon in Kingman, Arizona. And this is a place you can go to as well, everybody. It's in the Grand Canyon. It was found in the 1800s. Originally called Luana's Cabin by the family who lived in a wooden shack right in the heart of the canyon. The husband would leave his wife, Luana, hence the name, and their two children for a couple weeks at a time to bring back food and supplies. And one thing I want to add to this story is that the husband was part of the gold rush. He would go out and do the gold rush stuff, and he would come back with, like, food and shit. One day, he did not come back. As time went on, food went scarce, and Luana just could not stand to see her children starve to death. As urban legend says, Luana became so psychotic due to starvation, she murdered her children and cut their bodies up into small pieces to end their suffering. With the pieces in hand, she took them to nearby river and threw them in. It is said that she's still wailing on the riverbank until she finally died of starvation. If you are near the canyon at night, many believe that you can still hear the mother's screams and the bloody cries of the children. So that one I have heard before on a different podcast, but it was just, I was, it was like, it was on the list. So I, it's one of the first ones on the list. So that's why I had to do it. But, um, there's a couple things that, that I want to add that the husband was a gold dude. He did the gold rush stuff. He died out there. One of the tragedies or whatever, I guess happened. He was, he's part of one of the gold rush tragedies and he died and obviously he never came back. The mother killed the children. Uh, I think you can actually go to this house. I think it's actually there still. I don't know. But people say that you can hear the screams and stuff at night. I think you can just hear them in general by the river. 
and the I, the bloody curse of the children is new to me because that wasn't in their podcast. Because in the other podcast I listened to, their story said that the mother, you can only hear the mother's screams, but you can't hear the children. I don't know. I'd say this one is complete bullshit. The fact that it could have happened, like the actual mother went psychotic and killed the children. I mean, it goes down to the fact of if you're waiting for someone to never come back, why don't you try to go get food? It gets down to that, honestly, at the end of the day. It's hard to say what would, I don't know. I think this is the dumbest fucking story. I think this is a horrible story. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Why would she would kill the children over that reason? I mean, I get it, but it doesn't... I mean, at that point, you should just all die together. You're all going to die at the same fucking time, realistically. I mean, the children will probably die faster because they're obviously their children. They have you know, less things to absorb into their body. But, uh, I mean, fuck. Just try to go find some fucking berries or a rabbit or fucking go to a town or something like what the fuck i tried to do something you would think after the like oh damn he was supposed to be back today i should try to get some food for my kids dumb bitch jesus christ anyway yeah that story believability zero scary zero because it's dumb i i actually despise that story but now we're on Dog Boy. This is a true story, ladies and gentlemen. This actually happened. Well, some of it. Not all of this is true. The The story is about a true dude. And the family is real. The house is real. It is in Arkansas. And um, I think this is a, also a long article. So we're going to be here for a minute. I'm going to read everything down. I guess to the comments. Alright, yeah. We're just going to read everything. We're going to be here for a minute, ladies and gentlemen. So get comfy. This is a longer one. This is about as long as the Kishtaka one. Maybe a little shorter. 2005, the Central Arkansas Society for Paranormal Research. I probably didn't have to read that part. Casper was asked to visit a house at 65 Mulberry Street in the town of Quitman, Arkansas. So if you guys did want to see this house, if you live in Arkansas near the Quitman area, the address is 65 Mulberry Street. That is the actual address of this house where this stuff all happens. It seemed the owners of the house, a couple named Weaver, were experiencing odd events such as lights turning on and off on their own, sudden noises, cold spots, and feeling someone else was living in the house with them. Tony Weaver told Casper found Karen Schillings that he finally responded to their ad in the local newspaper when he saw a man dressed as a World War soldier staring through the foyer, through the foyer into the living room. Two years earlier, a renovator named Ed Mo Munnerlin, yeah, Munnerlin, working in the house at night, also reports seeing a large, weird-looking man with long brown hair, creepy eyes, and a big arm and hands. Big arms, sorry, I said big arms. Big arms and hands. Holding a cat in a rear sunroom. Munnerlin reported that the man walked right in front of him, glaring, before disappearing into the hallway. Munnerlin also noted a cold wind down his back when the figure passed him. Shortly thereafter, rumors began circulating sporadically that the mysterious dog boy equipment, whose piercing eyes could sometimes be spotted in the upstairs window of the house late at night, these rumors then multiplied into one of the most hysterical and problematic urban legends of the American South. Whitman is a small town straddling the border of Falker and Cleburne counties in the state of Arkansas. Its population hovers around 740 residents and is the home of the, of the usual retail stores and services. Resi residents and visitors dine at the Dog House, Country Line Smokehouse, and Apache's Grill down, down on Damascus Road. But buried deeper in the Buc What the fuck are these words, bro? 
they're, like, they're using some weird-ass words, but buried deep in the bucolic, bucolic small town, like an irritating splinter that cannot be removed, is a legend of Gerald Bettis, also known as Dog Boy. And as chilling or ridiculous as these reports may appear, this is a case of urban legend where the, where the true story is more interesting and in many ways more shocking than the paranormal folklore. Worse, it is not so much Gerald Bettis, but his dogged legacy that continues to haunt the small town equipment in the former and agitating and misleading paranormal websites and amateurish cookie-cutter YouTube videos that relentlessly mangle the true story. So basically, they're saying that there's a lot of YouTube videos out there that tell a false story and give you false information. So I'm going to tell you the facts right now. The hysteria, according to several shocking 14 style websites with many pop-ups inside this sleepy little town lurks the most astonishing account of terror and torture that many investigators have ever encountered. Had it not been for the actual newspaper accounts and police records, it would have been hard to fathom the degree of cruelty he rendered to his parents. The straight story. Around 1890, a family named Garrett constructed at the time one of the finest homes equipment, a rambling, a rambling two-story at the corner of Mulberry and Third Streets. A local woman, Mary Nell Hullabird, recalled to writer Lisa Ott, Armstrong in the October 20th, 2007 Arkansas Democratic Gazette that Benjamin Jackson moved in there with his wife. In 1898, they had a son, Joseph, who served in the World War. Who served in World War One? Joseph sadly died at the age of 21. His mother passed away at 28. What? Joseph sadly died at age 21, and his mother passed away at 28. Wait, what? His mom was seven when he had him. That's fucked. This speculation that the World War One era apparition seemed to be Weaver is Joseph Jackson. That Joseph Jackson is a minor player in this tale. The frame house remained empty for over a decade before Floyd and Aline Bettis moved into it around 1951. While childless for the first few years, they finally had a son of July 23, 1953, and named him Gerald Floyd Bettis, the main character of this story, by the way. Punk child to really bad man. From a very early age, Gerald, sometimes known as Gerald, was a large and challenging child. Neighbors reported that Floyd and Aline were good parents, but Gerald was malicious, demanding loud, always craving attention in inappropriate and tasteless ways. At a family reunion at the Quitman City Hall, for example, Gerald would open a chase lounge, then in the center of the room, in front of the Flamoke's crowd, he reclined back like a Roman emperor and arrogantly popped grapes one at a time into his grinning mouth. His social impetus, impen whatever, also made him target a bullying at Quitman Elementary School, with kids stealing from him and teasing him over his hulking size. So this kid was fucking huge, everyone. But as Jarrell grew into teenager, his social clumsiness took more feral turn. Took a more feral turn as he began pursuing some unusual behaviors, including collecting stray cats and dogs leading to his teasing nickname, Dog Boy. What the kids teasing him did not realize was that Gerald was just collecting, but torturing and killing those animals. Neighbors told reporter Lisa Armstrong in 2007, you could hear them howl. So basically, this kid was taking stray dogs and cats to, the, I'm assuming, the backyard of the house, and then was torturing and then killing them, basically. While these acts themselves are quite atrocious, no one would ever have dreamed the nightmare that would ensue. 
As his lust for violence grew, the size of his prey grew. From simple household pets to sometimes much more disturbing people. What is even more unveiling is that the eventual descent into the abyss of the evil was the dog was human victims were faceless acquaintances. Alright. This is the second part to the straight story. It is true that around this time, the 6'4", 300-pound Bettis began physically and psychologically abusing his parents. As a teenager, he perp he purportedly beat his father regularly and at one point even threw him out of a second-story window. Although Floyd was around 67 years at the age of the time, he, was, he managed to hang out on the window ledge until the police came after being called by the neighbor. There's no information available on the vicinity of the incident or how it was resolved. Although many details did not come out until Gerald Bettis went to prison years later, he discovered that he frequently locked his parents upstairs for days or even weeks at a time, taking them food only when he got around to it. For money, he had, to, he had a sunroom built on the house and sold homegrown marijuana out of it. According to the Heverspring Sun-Times, Floyd Bettis died in 1981 or after a supposed illness at their home, but rumors fueled that the websites insisted that Floyd had been pushed down the stairs by Jarrell and died of a broken neck. No doubt, Jarrell was a friend person. A neighbor, Nelda Kennedy, stated she was scared of him because of his eyes. You could, If you could have ever seen his eyes, she said in 2007, they seemed to glow at night. Kennedy also recalled in the interview that when Jarrell and some relatives started cleaning up around the house, an uncle came over and asked if he could borrow a gun because he was afraid that Jarrell would get riled up. Mention of the strange glowing eyes most likely led to the supposed nocturnal sightings of a large creature, sometimes still prowling the rooms and hallways of the 65 Mulberry Street. The end of the vicious tale came to the, came with the death of a dog boy. came with the death of the dog boy's father. It is reported that he fell from the top of the stairwell, breaking his neck and ending his tortured existence. Locals of the small town rural community believe that this is the final act of dog boy's sick pursuits. They believe and write so that the dog boy pushed his father down the stairs. Upon the discovery of the body, Arkansas State Police uncovered the shocking truth of what had transpired and freed Dogboy's mother from her son's dungeon. In 1982, Jarrell's abusive behavior started unraveling when his mother, Eileen, fell or was pushed and broke her hip, recurring, recurring straight at the Baptist Hospital at Baptist Health Hospital at Herbert Springs. A retired nurse, Mary Hollibird, saw Jarrell's treatment of his mother firsthand. He was sleeping her around. He was slapping her around, she recalled, and telling him, I'm going to have you arrested if you tell anyone what I did. Because this incident, Elaine was permanently removed from the house and, didn't, and placed in adult protective services. Upon questioning her, then Jarrell at home, police arrested Jarrell for his parental abuse and several drug offenses, including dis distribution. He was convicted and remained to Arkansas, Arkansas Department of Corrections in 1994. Jarrell inexplicably died of a drug overdose while in the DOC custody on May 18, 1988, at age 34. He is buried in Pearson Cemetery, but Jarrell's reputation was not about to remain dead. There is just a little bit left. Yeah. There it is. You can't you guys can't see these pictures, but there it is. Anyway. There's nothing right. Okay. The house on Mulberry Street remained in Elaine Bettis' custody until her death in October nineteen ninety five, after which Halbert's niece Reba Carter inherited it. Carter in turn sold the house to the Weavers and shortly after that was when the paranormal events allegedly began happening. In addition to seeing the World War I era soldier, Tony Weaver reported lights turning on and off by themselves and strange several pennies floating down the stairs. After six months of such activity, the Weavers did not want to live there anymore. Many, Mary Holliburton's nephew, Quentin, Quentin White, and his wife, Stephanie, rented the house from the Weavers in 2003 and reported similar occurrences such as commodities flush, 
what? Such as commodities flushing by themselves at random times. The last straw for them was one day while Quentin worked on the house, he heard a crash upstairs while he was downstairs on the phone with Stephanie. Hanging up, he ran upstairs and allegedly found a previously stacked pile of two by fours all standing up by their ends. The Whites also apparently left after just a few months. In 2005, Casper, led by the lead researcher Karen Schillings, investigated the house on two different occasions after lo locating cold spots and unexplainable electromagnetic fields. The team was startled when all three of them reportedly saw a face staring down at them from the second floor window when they went out to get some gear from a car. There was no one upstairs at the time, Schillings confirmed. Was it Jarrell? On the second visit with the team, took a medium who allegedly located what seemed to be a spirit of Jarrell Bettis. Schilling stated that the medium claimed he cursed us and told us to get out. Casper also documented on videotape what they considered to be additional evidence of paranormal activity, including unexplainable flashing lights. While footage of those excursions was shot over both visits, Schillings had to report that more than more report that more specular tape shortly afterward went missing, and attempts to locate it have been fruitless. Ugh. Believe it or not, the honesty and authenticity of these reports, notwithstanding over the last 10 years, Quibman has has tried to put the stubborn legend of Dieboy behind them, but most likely desiring to be recognized for something anything other than the lurking ghostly presence of a twisted mouth century sociopath. Town government officials are not talking, and the current house owners named Wilburn, according to tax records, have, have a private phone number and emails. A, li a, li a librarian of the Quinn branch of the Sun of the Cleburne County Library claimed to have never heard the story despite living in equipment her entire life. While the absolute true story of Jarrell Bettis may forever be lost in rumor, turmoil, and innuendo, the 3,088-square-foot, 3, five-bedroom house on Mulberry Street has no doubt experienced troubled ownership over the last decade because of the Dogboy legend. In 2012, it was listed for 130000 and over the next two years, it's endured has endured several price cuts as it drifted on and off the market. It finally sold to the Windburns in September 2014 for 68000 and half its original asking price. When the house was listed by Century 21 Retail 2014, they were setting in the description, turn on the Century home with all the charm history that goes with it. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, that I cannot fucking read to save my life. But, uh... The, some of the words they use in these are fucking stupid. Like, just use basic fucking words. Don't use fucking weird shit. But yeah. That's the story. Uh, the actual story itself is fucked. And pretty fucking spooky. But, um... Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess for believability, it has to be 10. Because it's a real story. For the actual story itself, I'm gonna say 10. For the paranormal side of it, I'll go like 3. 3, 4. For, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, the actual story, 10. The spooky side of it, 3. And uh, believability has to be 10 because it was real. So, yeah, Dog Boy, real story. Go check it out. If you if you live near that place in Arkansas, go check it out. Send me a pic. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see it. See what it looks like nowadays. Because there's a picture on that website I was just on. And I think that was from 2014. And the house is fucked. The house definitely looks fucked. Alright. This next story is for Cool Me. This is the Dark Watchers. The Santa Lucia Mountains of California. The Dark Watchers of California are a group of mysterious dark human-like creatures who stand tall in the hills, ridges, 
and peaks of the Santa Lucia Mountains. They supposedly watch those who wander into the mountains and are not aggressive. They are most often spotted around twilight and are usually seen staring upwards toward the sky while standing atop the mountains. They seem to be some sort of spirits, however, the origins are currently unknown. They've, they've been seen many times over the years, with stories about them dating back to Chumash Indian legends. Chumash? Chumash? Chumash Indian legends? They're mentioned into the story Flight by John Steinbeck and Iconoclastic poet Robinson, Robinson Jeffers wrote about forms that look human but certainly are not in his poems such as councils you gave to me sometimes in the mid-60s a monetary peninsula Jesus Christ monetary peninsula local and former high school principal went on a hiking trip in the Santa Lucia when he suddenly spotted a dark figure in a hat and a cape standing on a rock and surveying the area. When the principal called out to the other hikers, the creature vanished. More sightings continue to be made to this day. So call me if you want to go check that out for me and send me some pics. That would be awesome. Santa Lucia Mountains in California, the Dark Watchers. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I. I should I do? Should I do like some sort of like research on these? Because I just grab the stories and then I read them to you. That's what I'm doing for this one. If you guys want me to do research, definitely let me know. But uh, as of right now, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, we're just going to move on. Um, is that scary? Yes, it's fucking terrifying to be fucking hiking and then you see that shit. Fuck that. So um, I'm just going to go fives on the board for believability and scariness. Because I feel like it is real. I feel like this isn't... Because I feel like even if it's not like actual... I feel like people will go out there and do that shit anyway. Alright, so to end this episode, we're going to do a spooky story. So this story is completely fake, not real whatsoever. It's just a story completely fake. Nothing about this story is real. The story is the same. Oh, fuck. So I need to... This is part of a story. So basically, this story is called Don't Look Back. So I'm going to have to kind of phrase this in my own way up to the point of where the story starts. So basically, there's a couple sitting in a car at a... At a make-out point, as some would say. And on the radio, they hear the uh, local the local radio saying that a, that a murderer has broken out of prison. And everyone needs to go home and you know, get safe and whatever. So, basically, he tells his girlfriend to lock the doors and don't open them until he taps on the roof three times. So, basically, up to this point, they're, they're, at, so they're at this make-out point. And their car has broken down and they can't move. He tells his girlfriend to lock the doors and don't open them until he taps on the roof three times. He leaves and she does what he wants and waits for him to come back. So basically, the girlfriend gets into the back of the vehicle, gets under a blanket, and just, you know, stays completely still under this blanket and waits for the boyfriend to come back and knock three times. After about an hour goes by and she starts to get worried when she hears tapping on the roof. After three times, she's about to open the door, but the tapping doesn't stop. Confused and frightened, she doesn't open the door at all and sits there for hours, the whole time hearing the tapping on the roof. Finally, the police arrive and a cop came to the car and told her to get out, to come with him and not to look back. Of course she does, looks back and finds her boyfriend hanging from a tree over the car. The wind caused the branch to rock, making his feet tap the car over and over so um 
if he doesn't understand the story, basically, the boyfriend went to get help. I kind of didn't tell the story great, because I have it all fucked up on here. Basically, they heard they needed to get saved. The boyfriend went to get help because their car is broken down. She, he told his girlfriend to get into the back and stay down and wait for him to come back. He'll knock on the window three times when it's okay to get out. Or when it's okay to uh, get up out of the blanket. And um, she goes, he goes to get help. And then after a couple of minutes, she, she, he hears, um, she hears knocks on the, uh, on the roof. But she hears three knocks, but then the knocking doesn't stop. But it was because... He was hung by the murderer. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, if you get the story. It's called Don't Look Back if you want to read it. But yeah, that's the spooky story I have for you. I'll get a better one next time. That that story isn't good. I just told it really bad. But anyway, yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is the first episode of Urban Legends. Tell me what your favorite one today is. My favorite one is Dog Boy out of today. And um, I'll see you guys in the next episode of Urban Legends. Have a good one, boys and girls. I'll see you guys later.